Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coinos Hermes, a deep bow to Sophia. We're looking at the errors of embodiment. In our last contemplation, we considered the importance of cultivating embodiment as eco-sensual awareness, we could say. And we considered that instead of talking about becoming more embodied, we could talk about becoming more ecologied and maybe more encosmosed and also maybe more ensouled. And the idea, especially of really all three terms are much more holistic terms. And the idea is that embodiment, when we try to come into the body, we start to localize ourselves. And there's that process that we started out from the very beginning. We, we identify with the body already, and that, that doesn't alter our identification when we become more embodied or engaged in practices of embodiment. And so we might further localize ourselves, further rigidify the habit that we just have. It's not something we can think our way out of in some ordinary sense of thought or thinking. We can't just pretend we don't have a localized habit, a habit of localizing our identity. And all these things go interwoven, and we can see that with the fifth error that specifically raises this this issue. The fifth error is failing to address the need for holism and vision. And as part of this, because of the cultural context, we're going to think a little bit about trauma. Relatively speaking, we could say our bodies have become sites of trauma, but we want to ask the question of why, why does this culture generate so much apparent trauma? And raising the issue of trauma means really we're probably going to need a whole contemplation just on that. So we're, we're going to have two separate contemplations, I think, for this fifth error, because we all suffer from a culture of fragmentation. And that makes it especially important to think carefully with respect to holism. When we seek holism, we become fish out of water because we swim in fragmentation. And we need to be able to find our legs if we want to walk in wholeness. And the dominant culture has become very good at producing trauma, so that requires extra care in thinking about. So both these issues, just raising, raising the issue, if, if we say, well, embodiment, somatics, do we really have a sense of holism and vision there? That's a whole can of worms, really beyond even a single contemplation. And we'll think a little bit further more in more positive terms when we think about transcending these errors. But that's just, to, to we just want to acknowledge, okay, raise the question of holism and vision, that's a big deal. And then raising the issue of trauma, also a whole lot. And that means even if we think further into this as we think about transcending these errors of embodiment, we're not going to cover everything important about holism or trauma, but we can at least think about a few things that don't get enough attention in most discussions of embodiment and somatics. Not that I've memorized every discussion, but I think we'll think about things that you might not have thought about before. And let's give that a try by starting with vision. What is our vision of embodiment? 
Is it simply that we acknowledge our bodily existence? Is that we try to accept our, our embodiment? We might have to put acceptance in quote. Do we try to quote accept our embodiment? Is it that we find out how much trauma apparently our bodies carry, we could say? Does the body keep the score? Is that part of what embodiment is about? Is it that we experience flow states or notice the body as a source of pleasure and pain, bondage and liberation? Or will we ask about the nature of that liberation? Will we ask what shall I embody? What will I make real in through as this embodied existence? And how? How do we, for instance, embody democracy, justice, love, wisdom? Proverbs 29 contains the famous and beautiful line, without vision the people perish. And I think this gets at the meaning of our embodiment and the inherent meaningfulness of the cosmos itself. Every political and economic system depends on a vision of human beings and a vision of the nature of reality. That's how we get political and economic systems. We have to be told, well, we, we need to do it this way because this is what human beings are like and this is what the cosmos is. It shows you the intimacy of philosophy. We think it's all its abstractions or it's intellectual stuff, but we're living our life on the basis of philosophical claims about what human beings are, how they behave, and what's the nature of reality that we need to be in accord with. And that's why our politicians are always telling us about what's not realistic. And they operate with a vision of what human beings are, what the nature of reality is. And these visions range from skillful and vitalizing to unskillful and downright degrading. If we envision ourselves as atomized, self-interested, competitive, and so on, then we will begin to embody that vision. And remember, it might not be a conscious process. In the dominant culture, this most definitely happens in a largely unconscious way, resulting in a vision unconsciously embodied. Now, the whole issue of the conscious and the unconscious is subtle because it doesn't matter even if you were rooted in, if we had a culture that rooted us all in wisdom, love, and beauty, some aspects would remain non-conscious. But those are subtle issues to raise. We're just trying to recognize that we may proclaim that we don't accept the vision of the dominant culture, but the whole thing is organized in accord with that vision is very hard for us to suggest that we can f be free of that and certainly not on the basis of the kinds of somatic practices that we often find. And part of the challenge we face in the dominant culture has to do with a lack of understanding about the nature of a healthy mind and a healthy world. We really lack a vision of robust health, healing, wholeness, and holiness of mind, heart, body, world, and cosmos. Sometimes people have certain aspects of one, but not the others. Really, all together, do we have a vision of robust health, healing, wholeness, and holiness of mind, heart, body, world, and cosmos? In the dominant culture, we also lack 
sufficient acknowledgement of and skill in dealing with the unconscious. We always have to raise that because it's it's the majority of what we are. Majority of our mind is not conscious. And that increases problems of spiritual materialism. In general, the presence of the unconscious means we can sincerely believe, we sincerely believe and passionately proclaim we are doing one thing in relation to the body, for instance, while in fact something else is going on. And recall that spiritual materialism means absolutely any practice Absolutely any idea, any philosophy, etc., politics, body practice, whatever, anything can become a path for the perpetuation and even the elaboration of structures of power and domination both outside and inside us. So we can deepen ignorance while proclaiming that we are on a path of liberation. And this unfolds in part by means of unconscious processes as well as group dynamics and cultural habits. These unconscious and interdependent processes enable us to cleverly avoid asking difficult questions about the health of our bodies, our diet, our lifestyle and livelihood, all under the pretense of body positivity. So consciously we proclaim body positivity, but what's really happening is we're avoiding asking the hard questions about how we live, our lifestyle, our livelihood, our diet, our bodies. We can rationalize all manner of laziness, craving, self-medicating, spiritual bypassing, and general ignorance under the guise of embodiment in its various expressions. And some, that's uncomfortable. Some of that is really uncomfortable to recognize in ourselves and even in others. If we have compassion and we see people do this, of course, sometimes people just get angry. They start to ridicule it. And that ridicules, sometimes it's coming from these complicated psychodynamics. To get more of a sense of how spiritual materialism can function, we can note for instance, how readily we might accuse Christianity of emphasizing the duality of mind and body and even reviling the body and making it sinful. And yet, we could certainly find ways of practicing Christianity so as to realize the non-duality of mind and body and the non-duality of sacred and profane. In other words, there's not some in inherent thing which we love to say when we're being dismissive and we're trying to explain why the dominant culture is the way it is. Well, you know, of course, Christianity ruined everybody and made the body sinful and awful and all this. But there's, it's not inherent in an interpretation of Christian religion. Just as one example, the Orthodox branch of Christianity, I think we mentioned this in a previous contemplation, the Orthodox branch of Christianity accepts that God made sex pleasurable as an expression of divine wisdom, and they therefore accept having sex for pleasure rather than exclusively for procreation. And they allow priests to get married before ordination. And I think it's possible that that reduces the risk of priestly transgressions, 
may not eliminate it altogether, but the, the version of Christianity where that's not allowed at all seems to have a lot more allegations of priestly transgressions. I don't think it's just that the Orthodox branches are so much better at hiding some horrors that are going on. I'm not saying there's never been a transgression in those branches, probably are, but possibly reduced. And we also find, for instance, consider Paul's letter to the Colossians. He wrote, though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Now, theology is complicated. It's not easy to interpret passages like this. Hermeneutics, we can say, might, we can argue that the notion of hermeneutics, though people have engaged in interpretation for a long time, but that the formal study, maybe it, it sort of springs from wrestling with biblical questions. But if in Christ the fullness of the divine lives in bodily form, and if Christ has brought us to fullness, then we may find the fullness of the divine in our bodily form, since the divine made us in the very image of the divine. Now, of course, in a simplistic way, that makes us think, oh, well, that's you know, God's this dude walking around. That's, I think it's more subtle than that. Because that image, in some sense, is neither our body nor our mind. And yet, the divine clearly made our embodiment interwoven with vast ecologies of sentience. So what is the image? You know, the image is not a photograph. It's, it's as if to say it's far more subtle than you might think. It's not that we're picturing a, a guy walking around in a place called heaven and he looks like us. What is that image? The image somehow is included in the interwovenness with vast ecologies of sentience. Because our bodies and minds, the ones we have that are made in that image, these bodies and minds come fully interwoven with the world we share with countless sentient beings. Vast interwoven ecologies of sentience. And that means that the world itself must exist as the living, loving image of the divine. And we may find the fullness of the divine in the living, loving world. And you may think, well, whoa, you've gone way beyond now. That's not Christianity. Well, Hildegard of Bingen and Francis of Assisi seem to think in very similar ways. They invite us to imagine a Christianity oriented in that direction, and they lived it. And we thus learn lessons in both spiritual materialism and the creativity and radical honesty of liberation. And this is what's important here. It's not that Christianity says to revile the body and revile the world. It's a question of whether spiritual materialism carries us to interpret it that way, to rationalize what we want to do or to rationalize spiritual bypassing instead of facing, for instance, the energy of eros flowing in our 
system and understanding how to work with it constructively and creatively, well, we just revile it. Not really because that's what we have to do to be good Christians, but because we don't know what else to do. And because of psychodynamic forces, unconscious forces. Now, related to all this, we have a cultural need for holistic habits of embodiment that empower us to find joy and awareness in, through, and as our embodiment. That's part of vision, part of a real vision. That includes lifestyle and livelihood. What's our style of life? What habits of life do we have? What habits of embodiment do we have? Vitalizing embodiment has to do with our holistic lifestyle and livelihood, the way we do things moment to moment, day to day, season to season, year to year, generation to generation. And when we think about embodiment in those terms, it's, again, not really localized. Unsurprisingly, embodiment in the present context tends to get thoroughly co-opted so that it does not threaten capitalism, our sedentary lives, our capture in built environments, our degraded soils and foods, our polluted water, our meaningless jobs, our lack of free time and time in wild places, our lack of wild places our disconnection from the ecologies we depend on, our lack of democracy, our injustice and inequality, and our general domestication and confusion. If we think we can keep the present pattern of insanity mostly intact, just with more body positivity, well, we're going to end up causing a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. That's all, this is all about vision. And it's all about the sense of wholeness that embodiment demands that we consider, but that we often leave out. And so we can think about this in all kinds of ways. Like, it, does the embodiment movement question the jobs that we have on ecological grounds, on embodied grounds? Are there jobs that basically degrade the body? And so really, if you are interested in somatics and embodiment, you have to be interested in changing the whole system we have, really. And we could go into countless examples. One example that I often think is worth considering is going to the gym. And we may go to the gym because we sincerely want to take care of our body. And we might then put tremendous energy rather exclusively into me, me. And we can put that in quotes. That energy that we put out when we go to the gym, it doesn't go into ecologies that we actually depend on. Nature doesn't receive anything helpful from that kind of embodiment practice. And we might put incredible energy into it. It goes nowhere but me. And we have to look at even this holistically because we're not talking about, okay, I go and I work out in a gym. And when we raise some of those issues, okay, there's a built environment, but there's the commute. There's the fact that I, I'm traveling through ecologies where other beings live. 
and they don't get to have their life so that I can have a road that goes to a gym. So I might, in my whole life, when we look at the holistic thing, well, why am I going to a gym? Because I commute to work, I put in 40 hours of effort. None of that effort benefits any ecologies. It leaves me sedentary all day. And so I, 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 my commute to work and my time at work likely degrades ecologies and doesn't do anything else but that. It doesn't improve them in any way. It also degrades me. And then what am I going to do as a result? I'm going to go to the gym to try to take care of my body. Uh, even if we go outside, you say, well, okay, I don't go to a gym. You know, I, I, I do push-ups. If you, if you have zero equipment at all, then maybe you just spend time outside. But most people don't just go outside because many of the activities that they engage in, activities that become popular, involve an instrumental relationship with nature that also includes a range of degradation. So mountain biking, that's popular. It does not put nourishing energy into the ecologies where we mountain bike. Instead, we in fact might degrade the land and disturb the beings who live in those places in the same way that we live in our homes. And so both gym memberships and mountain biking can involve a lot of extraction, degradation, and participation in the incoherencies of money. And looking again holistically, think of all the materials we need to build a high-end mountain bike and how many high-end mountain bikes there are. And think of all the materials we need to build a gym, another built environment, and all those machines and weights and bars. All that material, that gets extracted from nature. So there's all this extraction to create these things. Then we go to these places, we either use the mountain bike or we go to the gym and the energy goes into me. That's just in the best case because in the mountain biking case, it's also disturbing the ecologies potentially every time I do it. And I know there's there are bumper stickers, something like mountain, there's, I don't know what it is, mountain biking is not a crime or mountain biking is not a sin or... And I feel for you. You want to be out in nature. It's, there seems to be all these positive things. But really? Would, that, would it accord with a vision of wholeness? Healing, healthiness, vitality of our heart, our mind, our body, our world, and our cosmos. And then we're not even done because, I mean, we could really go into detail to think about the expenses involved in hiring trainers, buying supplements, you know, that I'm going to have the protein shake. Even if it's simple like that, that I'm going to buy protein shakes or protein powders. I might buy supplements beyond that, special gear. And again, the commuting, especially with my mountain bike, I'm going to drive f far away maybe. And if we stack up all, this, all the extraction, all the degradation and all the energy and consider that it goes, it, none of it goes positively into the ecologies that we actually depend on, it can really appear shocking. And to pay for all of this, we might have to work at a job that 
again, itself does nothing to benefit the community of life we actually depend on for our survival. Now, there might be all kinds of good things about our job. But at the end of the day, in terms of a holistic vision that is ecologically realistic, we're not talking about being idealistic. We're saying, hey, the world depends on these ecologies. At the end of the day, are we takers from those ecologies? Is there anything that we do to try to give back? And that's not easy in this system. And yet our, hu- our non-human kin, our non-human kin, because the world was made in the image of the divine, and the divine made, because it's really important to see this, that if we were made in the image of the divine and we perfectly fit this world, what else can we conclude but that this world was also made in the image of the divine? We can eat the flesh here. We can eat the plants here. We can breathe the air here. Everything is completely interwoven. And so we were not placed here like objects on a stage. We were woven into this like an image in a tapestry a living, loving, holographic tapestry. And our non-human kin do not practice the sorts of lifestyles and livelihoods that we practice. Through their embodied practice of life, they give all their energy to making the whole of life possible. That includes for us. Our life depends on how they embody, how they practice embodiment. Bees give their energy to the process of pollination. This creates food for countless other beings. Horses, bison, beaver, and wolves help to constitute vast ecologies, keeping them healthy and creative and abundant. That's abundance mindset. You want abundance mindset, you cannot beat what the non-human beings have been doing for millions of years. There is less abundance of life after conquest consciousness sets in than there was before it. And so it's almost insulting from an ecological view when people talk about abundance mindset and manifesting. Because few of those people are manifesting ecologies that we need to live. And the abundance mindset is about how much stuff I can have. And it's all well and good to say there's enough for everybody, but it's also, it's all well and good to say that, but if we start taking from everybody who should have a seat at the table, then there's not enough left for them. We don't have to live this way. And so while all the other beings in the community of life give their whole embodiment, that's their somatic practice of life, to cultivate the whole of life onward. They give their whole embodiment to the activity of caring for life. Rather than an economics of growth and money like we have, they have an economics of care and cultivation, cultivating the whole of life onward. It's not growth, it's evolution. 
we have much more narrow sensibility, much more narrow vision, and we get cut off from all that activity and creative intelligence. We are cut off from wolves, horses, beaver, and countless other beings. We don't know anymore how to properly care for the whole community of life, how to cultivate the whole of life onward in vitality and true abundance. Conquest consciousness inherently involves getting cut off from our embodiment in so many ways, both obvious and exceptionally subtle. And though even that exceptionally subtle stuff can be profound in its impact. We could say that conquest consciousness most centrally and and most generally cuts us off from spiritual and ecological reality. Conquest consciousness interferes with our capacity to engage in the non-duality of spiritual and ecological reality. Whether we are fans of capitalism or not, what we refer to as capitalism emerges as part of the manifestation of conquest consciousness. Maybe we could have capitalism free of conquest consciousness, but that seems impossible by definition. First of all, it emerged from conquest consciousness. It expresses it. It, it is a way of naming the embodiment of conquest consciousness in its current stage. So as of now, capitalism and conquest consciousness go completely together in practice and calls for so-called conscious capitalism. We have to put that in quotes. Because it's a symptom of infection. And it's a contradiction in terms. Conscious capitalism, not if conscious means really aware in the sense that the wisdom traditions mean conscious. Buddha is not going to be a capitalist. Socrates is not going to be a capitalist. The peacemaker is not going to be a capitalist. I don't want to speak for indigenous traditions, but the peacemaker seems to be sagely I don't, I don't really see it, but all respect to indigenous peoples if they believe otherwise. But I'm, I'm trying to honor, I'm saying with due respect, I don't think that it accords with indigenous wisdom, the capitalist system we have. I can speak certainly for my own tradition. I don't, I don't really think Plato would be into it. And we've criticized that Smith is, first of all, not a philosopher, and in his writings, he acknowledges that what he is analyzing doesn't accord with wisdom. And so, therefore, it's never going to make us happy. So the system we have, Adam Smith, who we associate with it so strongly, he said it's not going to make us, it's not going to give us true peace and true happiness because it's, it's not at all connected with a life of wisdom and virtue. And that's why conscious capitalism is a contradiction in terms. It's, 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 we just acknowledge what Smith himself acknowledged. In one sense, it's almost as if capitalism functions as the major organizing mechanism. It's like an organizing mechanism for conquest consciousness, the way that, con- that consciousness gets channeled. In general, ignorance is never formless but always arises as a particular form. It's almost, you could say, the, 
the corollary of the Heart Sutra. Wisdom always manifests as form. The Heart Sutra says, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is exactly emptiness, emptiness is exactly form. Now, emptiness or openness, that is wisdom, that is sheer, pure wisdom. Pure wisdom is pure openness. But that pure openness always manifests as form. In the world we experience, that's how it is. And the same goes for ignorance. There's no free-floating ignorance. It takes forms. What we call capitalism and what we refer to as conquest consciousness and its more general expression constitutes the primary forms of contemporary ignorance. And it would defy common sense to proclaim capitalism as the major form of wisdom in our time. But those captured by the pattern of insanity can sometimes act as if they would like to make such a proclamation. Shocking! Isn't that so funny? You know what's the wisest thing we've got? What's that? Capitalism. That is really cutting-edge wisdom. No, nobody says that because it's stupid. Forgive me. We have to call it as it is. And capitalism, by its very nature, cuts us off from our own embodiment in a variety of ways. For one thing, capitalism functions by means of the manufacture of needs and desires. The manufacture of needs and desires. And this relates to a manufacture of problems. Capitalism, what's the creativity of capitalism? It is not the abundance of life. That is not what it taps into. Capitalism's creativity principally, or or at least a major stream of its creativity, is the creation of problems we didn't know we had. Capitalism, in fact, creates problems no humans in history ever had. Now, this is all really nuanced, as always, and we are in a context resistant or even resentful of nuance, but we keep trying. Dangerous wisdom involves trying to wrestle with nuance. So let's try to consider a paradigmatic example of what we're talking about here in relationship to our embodiment and capitalism's manufacture of needs, desires, and thus capitalism's manufacture of problems. How it creates problems for our bodies, problems for our embodiment. One entertaining example is dial soap. I don't know if all listeners have heard of dial soap. You can look it up. It's very uh, kind of big brand. The makers of dial soap Once upon a time, they developed an antibacterial line of soaps. Now, for those in the know, if you just wash your hands with soap and water, you're good. A whole lot of the the hygienic effect of washing is actually the physical activity of the water itself. Flowing water over our skin knocks away a lot of germs, and then soap helps to... Uh, reduce the surface tension of that water, carries more of it away. If you wash, you're good. But uh, Dial Soap Company decided to develop an explicitly antibacterial line of soap, and they first use uh, hexachlorophene as the antibacterial agent, but that was later connected to neurological damage in babies. Unsurprising, because you know this is what capitalism does, invents things. 
<laughs> and then, you know, we find out that it was not a good idea. So they stopped that one. And dial soap then integrated triclocarbon or uh, triclosan into their formulation. Now, there was a problem for them as capitalists. They weren't selling as much soap as they wanted to sell. So they did some research. They discovered that consumers didn't really find it important to have antibiotics in their soap. They didn't think it was needed. Nobody was really interested in having antibacterial agents added to their soap. And so Dial didn't... You might think, oh, well, let's consider this. Maybe they're right. Is it wise to have it? They, they didn't do that. They said, no, we, got, we want to sell this. So Dial Soap famously spent millions of dollars on an ad campaign with the basic tagline... You're not as clean as you think. <laughs> oh, I really love this example when you think about it. So we have a manufactured problem, a manufactured need. They made up a problem. They manufactured a problem for us. What's our problem? Well, you're not as clean as you think. This is not a real need. It's not a real problem. But it sure does affect our relationships with our bodies. And it affected people because people started using Dial Soap in growing numbers. Dial's ad campaign worked. Now eventually, eventually, took a long time, the FDA here on uh, the Turtle Island, the United States government, the FDA, that's our Food and Drug Administration for those listening abroad, Hello to everybody abroad. I don't say hi to you often enough. I know there are people, a lot of listeners in the UK and Ireland, my friends from the Emerald Isle and some other places in Europe, Africa. Hello, friends. I know you're out there. At any rate, so our Food and Drug Administration declared that soap companies could no longer sell soaps with triclocarbon or triclosan, triclocarbon, triclosan. And why did they say that? Well, among other things... They, those ingredients contribute to another problem we didn't have before. Because remember, capitalism is good at manufacturing problems, including problems no humans ever had on the planet. And the manufacture of those soaps contributed to another one of those problems, and that is antibiotic resistance. When you have antibiotics everywhere, flowing into rivers, streams, in sinks and bathrooms, everywhere, you start to cause problems. Now, the FDA don't seem to have finalized their opinion on uh, benzoconium, benzoconium chloride, which became the replacement ingredient. So Dial said, oh, well, we can't use the triclocarbon or triclosan. We'll just use this other ingredient, benzoconium chloride. I don't know what the FDA will say about it, but let's just review. Capitalism manufactured a problem we didn't have which was that we weren't clean enough. And let me say, I am a huge fan of basic hygiene. And I am happy to have people promote a skillful sense of good hygiene. That's a very important thing. But this obviously had nothing to do with our well-being, with a holistic vision of health and healing and vitality, of heart, mind, body, soul, world, and cosmos. It had to do with manipulating people and selling more soap. As every marketer knows, part of how you sell more soap is you make it seem superior in some way to everyone else's soap. 
or you find some other way of creating a need or desire for your brand. In other words, what is marketing? What is sales? We market things, we sell things by manipulating fear and craving. Period. We are not operating on the good parts of human psychology, generally speaking. Marketing is not about the proliferation of wisdom, insight, understanding. It is about manipulating fear and craving. That is our encumbered psyche, our kinked up, blocked up psyche. That's what marketing works on. And there's a lot more marketing than there is wisdom in this culture. The marketers conjure and manipulate the embodied experience of fear and craving. A lot of people in the self-help catastrophe do this. The self-help industrial complex really preys on this, but under the guise of goodness. Because the positive things they try to conjure up are, are, they seem like nice things, but it's still a matter of craving. It's still imagine your perfect life and you only have a four-hour work week and, and people show you their luxurious life. The self-help industrial complex loves to show you this. Law of attraction people who look very beautiful, they have wonderful clothes, and they're in the swimming pool with their laptop at the edge of the pool, typing, and the, and there's the text at the bottom of the screen says, I work three hours a week, or they, the voiceover of a lovely person, I only work three hours a week. The rest of the time I travel and enjoy the world. And this is the kind of vision that we get. Now, in the case of the soap, what do we have? We have a corporation who puts antibiotics in their soap. And so that's a thing that didn't exist before and that we didn't need. And so then they create another problem we didn't have before. So they, they put the antibiotics in the soap. They created a new problem for us. Hey, you're not clean. Oh, geez, I never had this problem before that I needed to have antibiotics in my soap. It was never a problem. But then they create more problems as part of it which is antibiotic resistance, but then even more, a general increase in the level of toxins in our ecologies. Because when you put antibiotics into soap, you have, the, you have to produce them. That creates a whole mess because there's an industrial process now that you didn't have before. You have to produce the antibiotics and that's going to create consequences for the ecologies. But then as the antibiotic substances get washed into our ecologies, they behave as a toxin there. So it's not just that they, be, they increase bacterial resistance, but they just in general behave as a toxin. And the production of these, again, it produces over 100 carcinogenic byproducts just to make the antibiotics that you put in the soap. So what's the irony? The irony is this is the dirtiest soap that we had at that point, maybe. I don't know. There might have been other dirty soaps. But this is an exceptionally dirty soap from an embodied standpoint when embodied includes ecologied and in cosmos. It's dirty for our mind because it creates fear and craving. It manipulates us. So it's dirty for our mind. Gives us a false relationship to embodiment. Gives us a false relationship to the world because we think we can just put this stuff in the soap and it's all good. It's just ignorance all around. Capitalism produces dirty soap. That's what it does. This is quintessential, look how good capitalism is, 
at doing what it does. And what's it, what's it good at? Producing problems. It produces dirty soap. It's an astonishing thing. And the basic story holds true for many, many products that change our practices of embodiment. The manufacture of needs and desires. The manufacture of fear and craving. The manufacture of problems infects our embodiment, including our lifestyle and livelihood, how we understand ourselves, how we relate to and care for our bodies and minds, how we relate to and care for the bodies and minds of others, how we relate to and care for the ecologies we depend on. As another example, I think it's a good example. It's worth considering another example. Philosophy is always concrete. Please always remember, anytime something that we consider, we contemplate, we reflect on in in these contemplations, anytime you wonder, well, how does that connect to my life? Just write a question. Everything we're thinking about is precise and concrete. Always, always, always. But sometimes it's good to look at something that seems very deliberately like an example and I think a common example is that we most of us like to have a cell phone that works. Even if you don't particularly like to have a cell phone, even think, oh man, it's a, I hate that we have these things, you know. But you get frustrated if your phone doesn't work. And so we've already, here's the problem that no humans have had. We created a situation in which we basically need functioning cell phones. I mean, we really kind of, I mean, some people can get away without it. But for most of us, it's pretty important. And the need for a cell phone was not a problem that existed on this planet before a microsecond ago in geological time. Even in just the time frame the human beings have have been around. Human-like beings, maybe a million years, depends on how you judge it, two million years, I don't know. Snap of the fingers. That's how long we've had cell phones. So this problem didn't exist. Capitalism made this problem. You think, oh no, it didn't. You know, our cell phones connect us. Well, the problem of the cell phone did not arise because capitalism wants to connect us. It does not particularly care. Capitalism neither seeks nor functionally facilitates real connection. Just like it produces dirty soap, it produces connection that lacks vitality. And in fact, real connection poses a tremendous threat to capitalism. So in place of real connection, capitalism seeks to manufacture fear and craving, needs and desires, manufacture problems, and then sells us products that seem to fulfill the manufactured problems, seem to solve the manufactured problems, seem to fulfill the manipulated fears and cravings. Since it must manufacture problems we don't have, capitalism develops by means of a path of an intentional and unintentional problems. That is the capitalistic path. It's not a path of wisdom, love, and beauty. It is a path of intentional and unintentional problems. It is a path of the manipulation of fear and craving rather than the transcendence of fear and craving. That's just that's how it divides itself. It just diverges radically from the wisdom traditions. The wisdom traditions have to do with resolving real problems, entering a state of no problem, 
transcending fear and craving. That's 180 degrees from the capitalist practice of embodiment. It wants us embodying fear and craving. It wants us embodying a need that maybe we don't actually have, a problem that it manufactured. It wants us to feel it in our bodies. In the case of cell phones, we find incredible degradation of human beings and the ecologies they depend on, the ecologies we all depend on. At a general physical and ecological level, it should astonish us to consider. Maybe you've considered it, maybe you haven't. But consider, cell phone sales have exceeded a billion units per year since 2009. Every year. And remember, there's a lot of people, 8 billion people, but that's more than 8 years ago. Smartphones themselves have exceeded a billion units of year uh, uh, each year since 2014. So in 2009, cell phones exceeded a billion units a year. Then by 2014, just the class of cell phones that we refer to as smartphones exceeded a billion units a year. And we can say the word billion, but it is very hard to think through those kinds of numbers. But can we just pause and try to consider this? A billion phones a year for over a decade, I mean almost a decade of just smartphones, a billion every single year. Every year, capitalism produces enough smartphones, just smartphones, that if we laid them down end-to-end, they would wrap around the earth four times. Every year we make that many. Now, I think it might even be more than I'm sort of estimating. You know, some, some smartphones are big. I have a relatively small one. So we might get around the earth more than four times if we laid all the cell phones produced, smartphones and non-smartphones, in a year. We'd go around the earth more than four times, many more than four times. When we think about the ecological costs involved, we can sense that our phones do not empower our embodiment, period, They do not empower our embodiment. We can find some kind of weird exceptions. You know, hey, I'm in an online course. There's an app. We're all together. I'm getting more embodied. My phone's really helping me. Okay. But not when we zoom out because your body is affected by all that extraction as are the bodies of other human beings who matter and other non-human beings who are our kin who really make the world happen. And on top of that, just that extraction and degradation, all the nonsense that goes into making that many cell phones every single year, then we have the lifestyles and the livelihoods that go together with those phones. The cell phone itself alters our habits of heart, mind, body, and world. For instance, using GPS, evidence, the research shows, it tends to cut us off from our landscapes. It further disconnects us. It does what capitalism does best disconnects us from ecological and spiritual reality. And we know 
that the apps on our phone tend to manipulate pathways of addiction, pathways of fear and craving. That's what capitalism does. That's not surprising. And that leads us to relate to the phone itself in addictive and distracted ways. Oddly enough, the majority of people think that they check their phones less often than other people. But they can't all be right. Now, can they? You know, the majority of people are saying that I check my phone less than other people. I know I do. But that just contradicts itself as a finding. It can't be that the majority of people check their phone less than the majority of people. Right? So, what is likely? We don't see how much the phone affects our embodied life. Depending on which studies we consult, we will find that people in the U.S., U.S. citizens, check their phone up to 150 times a day on average. More than half of us check our phones a few times an hour. One lower-end survey puts us at 47 checks per day. That's a low-end survey result. 47 checks of our phone per day. That would be a collective 9 billion phone checks per day in the U.S. alone. 9 billion phone checks in the U.S. alone. What do we check in reality that many times? We touch our phones. Just touch. Not check. Touch. We touch our phones 2,600 times a day. 2,600 times a day. We can only guess how many times body positive or pro-embodiment or somatic people touch their phones as they post all manner of embodiment content on social media. And in all these ways, the phone has co-opted embodiment in countless ways. Do we collectively check in with Sophia 9 billion times a day? Do we check in with wisdom, love, and beauty? Do we check in with the sacred? Do we check in with our highest intentions? Nine billion times a day, collectively. Do we caress our loved ones 2,600 times a day? Do we ourselves receive 2,600 loving touches every day? Now, maybe that's too much touching for some people. But is it fair to say that many of us might be starved for loving touch and genuine connection? Is it fair to say we remember to check our phone more often than we remember to check our soul? Or remember to enjoy our embodied experience? Without thinking about posting it on social media, just being there without tech, without the self-deception, sometimes it boggles the mind to see what people post. Why did you have to post that? Did it really help? Because it might seem like, oh, I'm being honest and raw. This is my embodiment. Is it? It's hard to tell. And remember that there's research out there indicating just the presence of a phone makes us dumber. It was a really fascinating experiment where they had people go in and take a cognitive inventory. It's basically an IQ test. And one group, they were, they were told they had to lock their cell phones in a locker. They couldn't take them into the room. Into the, and that was it. You have to put, put all your belongings, including your cell phone, no cell phones in this room. You have to lock your cell phone away in this locker. Group two, they were allowed to have their cell phones with them in the room, but they were told you cannot take your phone out. 
So your phone is off limits. You cannot take your phone out during this during this test. The people with the cell phones locked away performed better on that, that cognitive inventory. They basically had a higher IQ. So the mere presence of the phone statistically lowered the IQ of the other group. Just the fact that it was there. If we take out our phone, if we sit down to have a conversation, this is another study that was done in social science, if we, if we sit down to have a conversation with somebody and we say, look, I'm just going to turn my phone off and we set it down. So we, we, we're taking it out and we say, yeah, I'm just turning it off. The presence of that phone on the table disrupts our connection. It's not about whether I pick it up. It's really shocking. So capitalism infects and commodifies our bodies in more ways than we may at first realize. And it encourages us to embody fear and craving, praise and blame. The very things that the wisdom traditions are telling us will not help us. Fear and craving, praise and blame. The phone is encouraging us to activate. Capitalism encourages us to activate. Capitalism prefers anxiety and addiction to peace and liberation. It gains nothing from the cultivation of wisdom, love, and beauty and tries to twist these, to kink these into anything it can sell. And we can see some of this in so-called personal branding. I think I want to do a little bit more extended contemplation of this. This is really out of control. And there was a contemplation in the old Wisdom, Love, and Beauty platform, the old podcast, and I think maybe it's worth just rebooting that because things have gotten worse since that first contemplation. But our embodiment becomes a commodity we sell, whether in the labor market or in the social media market. If we look and sound a certain way, we can find a niche market for it. And we know that. We, we can see it. Everybody knows this. The influence of capitalism on our embodiment has taken many a strange turn in recent years. Some of those turns are rising from social media and cell phone use. So in a way, we're still, still considering this example. I mean, think, look how deep you can go on any one example. We could have gone much deeper considering the gym or mountain biking. But this is interesting. Capitalism fueled a market for plastic surgery once upon a time. So that already, that's a capitalist thing. There's a problem and of course, it's also cultural. You know, once upon a time, people said Socrates was ugly, but read the symposium, and it's really fascinating. You, you have this clear indication that though, and ancient Greek culture was kind of obsessed with beauty. So it's not like we just invented this, you know. But one of the amazing things about Socrates is how he represents this idea in the wisdom tradition that you can your inner beauty really can shine. You can cultivate an inner beauty that people find basically irresistible. And that's what the symposium is saying, that Socrates is not attractive, but he's extremely beautiful. And that's real, you know? The stuff that we see on social media often isn't. And once upon a time, people went to a plastic surgeon with a picture of someone else, like often a celebrity. So they would a, a person would go to the plastic surgeon and, and they would say, I want to look like this person. And imagine a celebrity. You know, I want to look like this famous actor or actress. 
can you make me look like this or more like them, you know? Like, I don't want to have their exact face, but I want to have this guy's nose or this woman's nose. But now we have a strange turn. People go to a plastic surgeon with a picture of themselves. That has begun to happen more and more. People go to a plastic surgeon with a picture of themselves and say, I want to look like this. Now, what's the catch? Well, the catch is that they have a big social media presence and they use filters in editing. So they don't look the way they appear in social media. They use makeup, they use filters, they use editing. And now the face that everybody associates with them on social media, and it could be a huge audience of followers, that's not the face that they see when they wake up in the morning. And this is a brand new problem on the planet. This is a picture of me. Can you make me look like this? Now, we could go on and on looking at the ways capitalism infects our embodiment. We may think of ourselves as consumers, but as soon as we look a little further, we realize we are the consumed. Capitalism consumes our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our world, our cosmos. It consumes them. It consumes our embodiment It it consumes our life energy, our creativity, our intelligence, our attention, which is integral to us. It's grabbing our attention all the time. That means it's peeling away at our self, the relative self that that we need in this life. It does everything it can to suck value out of us and the ecologies we depend on. Once we reflect on the nature and influence of capitalism, we may begin to recognize that part of how we heal and recover our embodiment has to do with transcending capitalism and finding an embodied life beyond capitalism. A vitalizing life beyond the story that we've been sold. And as I always have to repeat, we're not talking about, oh, well, that means, oh, it's Stalinism, that's it, Mao, it's over, death, destruction. No, this is destruction. This is destructive. And the alternative is not some other dumb idea. It's like saying we can't come up with any, this this dumb idea is the dumb idea we have to stick with. Why? Just because. This is the one we have to stick with. It's dumb, yes, but we're sticking with this dumb idea. (laughs) That makes no sense, does it? So how can we think a little bit more clearly? Capitalism isn't interested in the fuller realities of our embodiment. It treats us like machines functionally. It doesn't matter what language we put over it. It treats the world as a machine and a passive source for extraction. Capitalism cuts us off from the natural world it always has. The development of capitalism goes together with people being thrown out of the rural landscape and being driven into the cities, being forced to sell their body or rent their body out in exchange for wages. The development of capitalism goes with increasing disconnection from the spiritual and ecological realities of embodiment. And when we think about it, we might be the fittest person on the planet 
But when we walk into a grocery store and we hand over money, in exchange we get all sorts of exotic foods for our carnivore diet or our paleo or keto or vegan diet. That's a total abstraction. We likely have little to no intimacy with spiritual or ecological reality in that moment, that moment of exchange. We may have little to no idea where the food came from or exactly what it took to grow it and get it to us. And that includes the work done not just by humans, but by the larger ecologies of life. The ecologies we depend on, the community of life we depend on. And this is just one way of talking about a problem, or we could say a set of problems that is diverse, nuanced, and subtle. But however we look at it, we find that capitalism alters our relationship with the ecologies we depend on, and it doesn't offer us a way to heal the rift it creates between us and spiritual and ecological reality. Instead of ways to heal our embodiment and to heal and engage with the ecologies we depend on and the spiritual realities that we must be attuned with, we have commodification. Spiritual and ecological needs get abstracted and commodified. Because that's deliberate, right? To to make us think that we can solve our, our spiritual needs and even our ecological needs through the transactions of the capitalist system. Oh, if you buy this, it supports that. Okay, meanwhile, the degradation, you didn't make up for it. And there's an active sense to try to get us to, to sublimate spiritual and ecological needs into products. So instead of a way to heal the rift created by conquest consciousness and capitalist system, we find an increasing recognition of our interdependence with nature and an increasing recognition of the medicine our relationship with nature provides us. And that gets sold as a product too. Everything, psychedelics getting industrialized, commodified, nature and commodified. Relationships aren't products. And we are relational beings. If we are relational beings through and through and relations are not objects, how are you going to sell it? Relationships involve a dynamism that depends on the quality of our being. A product comes home with us no matter the quality of our being. That's, in fact, part of what the ego likes about it. Through this commodification, we get sold fragmented spiritual and ecological experiences and we don't get a path for cultivating our lives in such a way that we have more genuine, vitalizing, and comprehensive relationships with nature. Instead, we rent ourselves out for higher and higher wages. Exchange for that... And and keep in mind, this... it's, it's a funny trend for me when I see this sort of thing in social media where people want to work less and less hours. And I understand that we don't want to do the stupid jobs the capitalist system provides. But, but but what do people do with their free time? They don't say, well, so I can heal the ecologies. You know, I only work three or four hours a week doing this money stuff. But the things that they're doing to make money don't help ecologies. And then what people do in their free time doesn't help ecologies. And so you have people out there saying, oh, you can charge all this money. Like, you know, especially... 
since I'm a philosopher, I get all kinds of marketing material for the self-help industrial complex. And maybe it's partly because I critique it. So, you you know, I don't know how I get tracked for it, but I find it interesting. So I look at it. That's, that's probably, I'm creating a feedback loop. And it's amazing how people want to say, you know, you have these really, this expensive stuff. There's some manifest person, some manifesting person. There was a YouTube ad. This manifesting person gets paid a million dollars to go and talk to corporations and train their people. And I'm thinking, really? It's a strange concept. So a million dollars in wages, but what does that person do with their money? And so what we do is we buy a vacation to a place where there's nature. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Take all my money and go out to nature. Well, but you live in nature. Why don't you take care of the nature of where you're at? And we're not seeing. Capitalism manufactures problems, degrades nature, and we are all participating in this. We're degrading nature at the same time as we have begun to wake up to how important it is. We're starting to see sickness in our bodies that come from this very disconnection from nature. Nature and embodiment go completely together. There's a non-duality there. It's not that, oh, there's nature and here's my body. But there's not a duality. So we need to think really carefully about where we find ourselves ecologied. <laughs> where are you ecologied? And we don't recognize the full scope of the problem because of the propaganda of the dominant culture. We have had discussions about the value of nature for as long as the dominant culture has been cut off from it. That's This is not present. So in a way, maybe it's, I don't know if I should say that we're becoming more and more aware. I don't know if we are. Maybe we just have different sets of data and a proliferation of data on an old set of questions and problems. The earliest stages of the disconnection go back thousands of years, really, depending on how we look. So maybe we're just, we're not any more aware. We just have a lot more data and we're talking about it. I don't know. It's a lot of talk. I don't, we're not doing as much as we could to heal the world. Not that we can run out and fix it. We need to sit around. We need to. We need wisdom. But there's just a lot of confusion. And a lack of holism. That's what this error is about. This error of embodiment. Was all, I hope this, this makes sense. You see, when we, sometimes when you consider the examples, you, oh, we forget what we're doing. We're doing philosophy here. We're thinking about an error. All of this is about the error of embodiment. These are the realities of our embodiment. Whatever we think we're doing with body positivity and somatics and whatever, you, whatever thing we're doing, yoga, whatever, it's happening in this context. And you, if, you don't, if we can't recognize that, then all this embodiment talk is another layer of abstraction. We're being abstract. The concrete reality is you've got a billion smartphones every single year, plus who knows how many other phones, Right. And we have money, and we have fear, and craving, and social media. It's all happening. We have a system affecting our embodiment every day, 24 hours a day. And so people tend to emphasize certain aspects of these issues, but typically they lack the holism. The holism we need if we really want to heal 
our embodiment and the ecologies that embodiment depends on. We are ecologies. We are ecology. The question is, what's it going to look like? So a lot of people try to address the fact that embodiment has a political dimension. Others may stress that it has an economic dimension. Others stress certain psychological dimensions. But it's all together. And if we want to heal our embodiment, as far as we can tell, as far as I can tell, that's going to require challenging the capitalist framework. It's going to require democracy. Not because we have to blame all our problems on capitalism and authoritarianism in some fragmented way, but because capitalism and authoritarianism arise as an expression of our ignorance and they create ecologies of ignorance. So the only way to heal our embodiment is to heal our ignorance and to approach that in a holistic way. And too few people interested in embodiment really talk about just even this aspect of capitalism gets left off. A lot of times it does, especially in the self-help catastrophe because the self-help industrial complex is a capitalist endeavor. So if we want to heal our embodiment, it's going to require challenging the capitalist framework. We, we don't get to keep capitalism if we want to fully heal our embodiment and the ecologies we depend on. It doesn't look like we do. It's, it's going to require more creativity, real abundance thinking. An abundance mindset is we can do better than this. That's abundance. We don't need this system. It's too limiting. What's it going to look like? I don't know. We have to create it. Is it going to be Stalin? No, that would be dumb. We just, let's make that clear again. No. It wasn't a bunch of spiritual geniuses who sat down and came up with the system that we have. But we see what it does to our embodiment. And of course, within this context, you, have, you can have countless individuals who might feel they recovered a lot within the capitalist market that they've paid for all sorts of healing that really helped them. And maybe they'll say, I'm more embodied than I've ever been in my life. But that just individualizes embodiment. That's part of this error. And again, it's connected to the other errors, this idea of localizing and in atomizing our embodiment. Ecologically and spiritually, we can sense that our embodiment is constituted by interwovenness, and cannot exist outside of interwovenness. The same person who might claim they've done all sorts of healing in their embodiment might not have done very much at all to help heal the natural world. And so they're still going to have plastic in their blood, they're still going to have lead in their bones. They might feel better. And even if they go through their whole life basically untouched, you know, like they might ha not have any conscious awareness that they've been affected. They might die thinking, oh yeah, I had a great life. This was great. That's not how the whole community of life feels. Again, it localizes it. Can, can people live and die thinking, it, oh, everything's good? Yeah, they can. But does that change the degradation, the extraction, the pollution? No.
So we know that a fragmented approach is going to be limited and limiting. That's the other side of it, because whenever we, we are going through saying, oh, no, everything's fine, we're actually limiting our, our own potential. Our potential gets captured by the self-help catastrophe and by the capitalist framework in general. And it's what capitalism offers us, that we can feel better if we buy it at the expense of the natural world. Those are the pieces there. You can feel better if you buy it at the expense of the natural world. Capitalism has so captured our science that even some scientists now suggest that money can make us happy. Instead of recognizing the truth that we have created a system in which poverty buys us misery, relative ease comes with a monetary price. We've created a false system in which money buffers us from many forms of suffering. In fact, it just buffers us from the ways we're out of congruence with reality. Money can purchase improvements to our bodies and minds in a relative, limited sense. But that does not make money an authentic source of happiness, nor does it make it a facilitator of happiness. And as we try to overcome that whole tragedy of the soul, as we try to dissolve these problems in ourselves and our world, we find that we have to start making more and more gestures that go counter to the catastrophe of capitalism. And all of this relates to our vision. If we don't reflect on our vision of life, not just, oh, I can be the best, whatever, but what is this? What is this world? What is it? What in this world do we have to be attuned with? If we don't reflect on that, a deep sense of vision, if we don't address the highest values and intentions we have for our embodiment, including its ethical foundation and the interwovenness of spiritual and ecological realities, then our attempts at giving the body its due, a kind of carnal justice, we could say. I'm, I'm nodding here to Plato. Some people out there might recognize this. Giving the body its due is a carnal justice, a carnal righteousness. That's even better. Carnal righteousness. That's carnal, C-A-R-N-A-L. I hope it doesn't sound like kernel. Carnal righteousness. If we don't really adjust ourselves to all these important things, then our attempts at this carnal righteousness will not bring us the fullest transformative healing and insight we need, even if it may seem to bring many wonderful benefits. Justice and embodiment go completely together. And I was using the word righteousness because the word that Plato, when we, when we translate the Republic, which is about justice, that word that we translate could also be translated as righteousness. I think that's kind of beautiful. I also always love what Cornell West says, that justice is what love looks like in public. It's, the social, it's a social form of love. Justice and embodiment go completely together. 
Righteousness and embodiment go completely together. Justice and holism go completely together. Embodiment and holism go completely together. Conquest consciousness is beset by fragmentation, which means all of us infected by it embody fragmentation to varying degrees. We embody fragmentation. We may not want to. We may intellectually say, no, I get the wholeness, I'm with the wholeness. Amen to wholeness, I'm in the choir of wholeness. It doesn't matter if you got infected, you got the fever of fragmentation. And we find fragmentation pervasive in the dominant culture. This leads to strategies of self-help that involve fragmented and fragmenting tactics, tools, and techniques. It's a toolkit approach that makes use of empirical and emotional findings that lack a holistic ecology. A lot of you know one of my favorites is flow, mindset. Fragment, fragment, get over it. We'll be coming up, I'll do an anti-flow episode soon. I don't know, do I want to call it against, against flow, anti-flow? We need to go against this flow. We need to go against the stream of this kind of nonsense. When we turn to the wisdom traditions, we find holistic ecologies that seem to always contain and go beyond the most important findings of dominant culture science. And I mean, like, you know, the good stuff, the positive psychology. I have encountered nothing in the self-help industrial complex, including neuroscience and psychotherapy, which are kind of in, in, in it, which is weird. You think, no, neuroscience is not science is science. No, it's all in there, really, is at this point. And I really haven't encountered anything in the self-help industrial complex that doesn't have some effective analog in the wisdom traditions. Once we put aside the neurobabble, we realize our embodiment does not function on the basis of manipulating our vagus nerve or controlling our reticular activating system. It doesn't work that way. Rather, we have nothing to work with but experience. And that experience functions holistically. You actually don't work with your body, you work with your experience. In an important sense, And as we said, in an important sense, it's not like there's a soul inside this body. But this body that we think of as so concrete is inside the soul. That's the wholeness. I think we should pause here. I think this is, this is a good, good enough bit of reflection on wholeness in general, and then I think we're going to look at tr trauma because this need for wholeness, it reveals itself in so many ways, and one of them relates to trauma. Very subtle, nuanced topic, could be provoking in some ways, but we'll just see if we can keep our, keep our clear mind, spacious mind, and look at trauma, especially in relationship to practicing wisdom traditions, and consider how trauma itself really reveals our need for wholeness. But for now, let all this sink in. Ponder, contemplate, think through your life critically, think about your embodiment. Really look at your embodiment. Look at the ways this, this system gets you to be embodied, how you move, what you have to do, what the meaning of work is. Does it seem connected to spiritual and ecological realities, what you do every single day? And what do you think about what a deer does every single day? Do you see deer? Do you know what the plants are around you? Do you know what the other bodies are? What other bodies live where you live? What bodies are restricted from moving about because of the way we move our bodies about? 
Can we get beyond human privilege in our embodiment? Can we become ecology? Can we become encosmosed, ensouled? What is your vision of wholeness? Now remember, we're fragmented, so don't go, don't get too. You can go. You go. Oh wait, I'm wholeness. Everything's wholeness. But just slow down. We are we are stuck with the fever of fragmentation, but we can begin to think about healing. Think about well, what might wholeness be? It must be quite mysterious. So let some of that germinate. And if you have any questions, reflections, stories, anything. Send it in through dangerouswisdom.org. Might be able to bring some of it in a future contemplation. Until next time, my friends, it's been great thinking through this with you. This is your friendly neighborhood soul doctor reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. In this holism, you are already whole. So take good care of it.